Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Miriam Abelson about her new book, Men in Place, Transmasculinity, Race, and Sexuality in America, published in 2019 by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Miriam Abelson is an Associate Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Portland State University. She received her PhD in Sociology and a Certificate in Women's and Gender Studies from the University of Oregon. Her ongoing research and writing projects focus on LGBTQ youth, whiteness, nation, and sexuality in the rural Northwest, and transgender people's experiences of discrimination and violence. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to cover your book. It's been one on my list for many, many months now to read. So um, I first want to hear about how you came to write this book, uh, what inspired you to write this book, and how did you begin this project, as well as a few words about yourself. Sure. Um, So as you know, I'm in an interdisciplinary department of women, gender and sexuality studies. I teach courses on queer studies, transgender studies and feminist research methods. Um, But my training is in sociology. Uh, As you mentioned, I have my PhD from the University of Oregon in sociology and my bachelor's degree in sociology from San Francisco State University, which is really where my love of sociology started. I see myself as a sociologist who speaks to uh, scholarship in interdisciplinary fields of uh, gender studies, American studies, um, and geography, as well as as sociology. And I really got interested in studying masculinities um, as an undergraduate um, in sociology and trying to sort of understand my own place in the world as a, you know, sort of masculine person. Um, I came across, I think, you know, as a masculine woman or a gender nonconforming person, I came across this field of critical men and masculinity studies. And it was a way for me to sort of put my own um, feminist leanings and thoughts into thinking about myself and also thinking um, more broadly about how, um, you know, masculinities or people who did masculinities could, um, really still be a part of, of that kind of feminist and queer change um, that I was interested in. Um, and I had, um, you know, wonderful mentors at San Francisco State in that work. Um, and I think in graduate school, I was really lucky to have feminist mentors that showed me how to do any kind of research um, in an ethical way, where my, the care for the people that I was doing research with was really paramount to anything else. And to do so without losing that really critical eye on um, looking at social inequality and injustice um, in, a, in a deep way. So I think of uh, my, my mentors, Jocelyn Hollander and Ellen Scott at Oregon, um, Lynn Fujiwara, who really taught me how to um, develop a deeply intersectional perspective that was rooted in women of color feminisms and queer of color critique. And, um, and CJ Pascoe later on in my, um, in my graduate work, who really drew me in a new way into the study of men and masculinities. Um, And as I was finishing up the the dissertation and working on the book, 
Um, she was really instrumental in that as well. In terms of what inspired me to write the book, um, it came from that time as I was finishing my undergraduate degree in sociology at San Francisco State. Um, and I had to pick a topic for a senior seminar project, as my students now often have to do. And um, I looked around. Um, I was in my late 20s. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area where I had lived my whole life at that point. And, um, you know, I looked around at what was happening around me, what I was interested in. And I really knew a lot of trans men who were transitioning. And I was interested in the ways that they were becoming really different kinds of men from one another. And um, once I started looking into the literature that was available at that time um, on trans people, and we're talking about like sort of the late 2000s, uh, first decade of the 2000s, I found that the literature really came from a lot of psychological and medical approaches that didn't really represent the lives of the trans people I knew. Um, and so I thought, you know, let, let me do this small project and um, see where it goes from there. I ended up just using that um, as one of the projects I talked about on my applications to graduate school. And after a lot of hemming and hawing um, about it, I, I started the research um, in the San Francisco, back in the San Francisco Bay Area for my master's thesis. Um, with some more hemming and hawing, really thinking about, should is this the project that I should do, um, right? Am I the right person to do this project? Um, I continued it with uh, interviews in the Southeast and in the Midwest, and I combined those with the, the original ones from the West Coast for my dissertation. Um, and as I continued to do that, it became really clear that, especially when I got outside of the, the San Francisco Bay Area, that um, the men I interviewed, the trans men I was doing interviews with, really wanted their stories out in the world, um, and that and they entrusted me to do that. And so, um, you know, I instead of just being a dissertation that sort of laid on a shelf somewhere, I really started to imagine the project as a book, um, to as as an and as a real effort to get. Uh, the voices of this broad range of trans men out there into the world. Um, I, th I think as far as I know, I think it's still the largest study interview study with trans men to date. Um, and it, you know, it's just so important to have the variety and complexity of, of those voices and those experience out in the world. And I also, as I went along and I learned more about this field of critical men and masculinity studies, I was also motivated to include trans men as men in the field of men and masculinities. Um, I think that, you know, I found that the field really has this cisgender and essentialist bias where people like trans men are either left out um, or treated as a special case or as not really men. Um, and that's not how the sort of knowledge I had of trans men and how trans men thought about themselves. Um, and so I thought that that was another important contribution. Um, and then finally, also bringing in this notion of combining um, space, thinking about space and place and a really deeply intersectional approach, which I think that, you know, there, there are ways we see that in sociology. I think we see that quite a bit more in geography. And, and that's something that seems really central about um, making sure that it, it was highlighted in this project.
Yeah, for sure. And that's awesome about this book being the one of the largest or the largest study uh, interview study on trans men. That's incredible, especially given that your work is intersectional and brings in all these other like perspectives. Um, and it's not like a monolithic um, account of trans men. Like if we're going to have the biggest study and it's going to, you know, have that title attached to it, it's good that it's your book because it does have the complexity that we need in studying trans men. Um, so I think that's great. But so can you tell us a bit more about the methods that you use to conduct your study? You mentioned interviews. Yeah. So I did in-depth interviews with trans men in the U.S. West, the Southeast and the Midwest. And I did those over about four years. Um, I thought of them as modified life history interviews that really focused on trans men's lives as men, whatever that meant for them. Um, Some of that earlier literature I'd looked at was really focused on childhood experiences. And while those can be important, I think those had had sort of been covered. So I was interested in, um, you know, what are these experiences of social interaction like um, when trans men are living as men, whatever that means for them. Um, and so I asked a lot of questions about, um, different interactions, different settings that trans men were interacting in, um, so that I could try to get at the ways that, um, social inequality, but also resistance to inequality are produced in those everyday moments. Um, all but a few of the interviews were done in person. I did a few phone interviews here and there. Um, For the West Coast interviews, I did a series of trips in Northern California and Oregon. Um, And then about a year later, I did a month-long road trip in the Southeast, which started and ended in Atlanta. Um, And then a few years later, I did another month-long road trip in the Midwest. So again, it was a total of 66 interviews over about four years, thousands of miles of driving, um, and a few flights in there. And as I interviewed men across the U.S., I, you know, we did that in their their homes, at work, um, in libraries, many, many coffee shops. Um, I'm not a big Starbucks fan, but I'll just say that I've spent a lot of time in Starbucks across the country. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that uh, I don't know if I would have been able to write about space and place in the same way if I get in, didn't get to see many of the places where the interviewees lived. Um, I also love road trips and also talking to people about the places they live, you know, for good or bad or in between. And so this was a real opportunity um, for me to get to do some of those things and that, that interest I have in, in, in people and the places that they care about. Um, Now I know that not everyone has the resources to, to do in-person interviews. We have wonderful technologies like, you know, Skype and Zoom um, for doing interviews. But um, I was able to apply for some small grants and support also with some student loans, um, which gave me the resources to travel um, and have that really wonderful experience to see so many new places um, and really experience places that were relatively new to me. Um, Another thing I wanted to say about the methods is that it also seemed to really matter to the men I interviewed that lived in those more far-flung places that I was traveling to meet them. Um, and, and interestingly, I think it was actually easier for me to recruit in the Southeast and the Midwest than it was in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
And, and that's even with the fact that I'm from the San Francisco Bay area. I knew a lot of people there had networks, but it was so oversaturated and still is with researchers. Um, we know that, you know, um, queer and transgender research has this sort of urban coastal bias. And -hmm. that was so clear as I was doing, um, the interviews and, you know, people in the, and this trans men in the Southeast and in the Midwest were just, for the most part, so much more eager to talk to me um, than those in the, in California. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's a really nice way to do research when you get to go to your participants and really see where they're living in their daily life, where they're embedded um, mm-hmm. in, in their spaces. So I think that's a really unique experience. And I could tell that you, that you had that unique experience through the way you wrote in the book. Um, you could just tell that you, you spent a lot of time um, in the same spaces as these interview respondents. But mm-hmm. I want to go ahead and jump right into the content of the book. So sure. you find, like one of your major points is you find that there are four most common spatially based masculine ideals among the men in your study. And these mm-hmm. are the hyper-masculine men, the regular guys, progressive men and faggy men. Can you tell us a bit about each of those? Sure thing. Um, so the hyper-masculine men, and again, these are, these are kind of what came out of the interviews. And when I asked them questions about, you know, what are men like in your area? Who do you want to be like? Um, who do you not want to be like? How do you see yourself? Um, and so the first one was the hyper-masculine men. And this incorporated this, this sort of stereotypical, superhero masculinity that we often think of when we talk about hegemonic masculinity. No, that's not quite what hegemonic masculinity means, but it's often what we think of. Um, And I found that most men didn't really want to be this hyper-masculine caricature. It was something they mostly set themselves apart from. So these men are are too violent, they're um, too unemotional, or too filled with, um, you know, anger and rage. Um, They're indelicate and other things like that. Now on the other end of the spectrum, so those are the men that were too hard on the other end of the spectrum were um, the faggy men, um, which are not the same as gay men. I think that um, a lot of the men really distinguished. They, they were like, I'm not homophobic. In fact, many of them were queer gay identified themselves. Um, but they focused on, you know, this sort of hyper effeminacy or femininity um, in a, other men. And um, these men were too soft. They were over emotional. They weren't in control of themselves in those ways. Um, And generally faggy men were seen as sort of ridiculous and unserious. They were a joke. Um, And then that sort of sweet spot in the middle was, was being a regular guy. Um, And, um, and I can talk more about Goldilocks masculinity, but this was the, the just right of Goldilocks masculinity, not too hard not too soft, or as I say in other parts, they were sort of hard when they need to be and soft when they need to be. So this was kind of, you know, just, you know, I don't want to be that hyper-masculine dude. I don't want to be this sort of ridiculous, faggy man. Um, I just want to be a regular guy. Um, And I find that this is certainly better than like an aggressive hyper-masculinity, but that it also legitimizes gender, race, and sexual inequalities. Um, So it upholds, you know, a status quo, essentially with a kinder and gentler face. 
Um, it's a hybrid masculinity, as scholars like you know C.J. Pascoe and Tristan Bridges um, talk about it. Um, and then the, the other category, the progressive men, were kind of um, a hope for something different. I think as sociologists, we're not always good, or maybe I'll speak for myself. As a sociologist, I'm not always I'm good at pointing out all the ways that inequality is, is produced, but I'm not always good at um, pointing a, a different way forward. And so for me, the progressive men, again, that emerged out of these interviews were, were this hope for something different or a different kind of masculinity. Um, these aren't the caricature of the new age sensitive guy, but really represented um, an attempt at an intentional effort to make change through, you know, as, as a sort of masculinity. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it's interesting that you you do make the distinction that faggy does not equal gay, and I think that can be a misconception hearing that term, so I'm glad that you made that clarification. Um, and then how did privilege change? Because you mentioned that each of these have a little something different to bring, and each of them have, you know, some, like perhaps faggy men did experience homophobia even if they weren't gay. So how did privilege change with transition? And were all of these changes for the men positive? Because we often hear in sociology of gender, like uh, masculinity is um, placed above femininity. So we think, oh, if you're transitioning to a man, you would gain privilege. But was this the case for your respondents? Yeah. Um, So, you know, they definitely, my respondents overall, all but a few of them reported really marked differences in how they were treated by other people once they were recognized or in the moments they were recognized as men. Right, so they're included in men's backstage or locker room talk, given more respected space, often treated as competent, right? They knew how to set up computers or fix a flat tire or something else. Um, so, you know, regardless of what they thought about it, um, trans men often thought they were found they were brought into these new experiences of social privilege, right? Being recognized as men. Um and I think this 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 updates some earlier research with trans men, like Kristen Schultz's work and others, that shows this sort of how we can see how gender inequality persists, right? And I think my interviews, uh, interviewees' stories show the same thing, right? Is there still gender inequality between men and women? Absolutely. But of course, we see that um, this also shifted based on the race, the class, the sexuality of the man. Right. So I often use the story of one um, one man I interviewed talked about he, how he's actually seen as less competent and even potentially dangerous in his job as a nurse. Once he was recognized by others as a black man, um, his patients, families were now afraid of him taking care of their loved ones. Right. Um, he and a, f- a couple of other of the black men who I interviewed talked about now, you know, being very fearful of, of violence from the police. Um, so I think that, you know, we, these, these experiences of privilege, um, you know, and, and there's, there's, um, plenty of work in the sociology of gender and that, and race, class, and gender that shows this, I think of like Adia Harvey Wingfield's work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shows how, um, we can't really understand that gender inequality without understanding also how it's racialized, how sexuality is a part of it, et cetera. And, um, and I do think there's something interesting about the, um, there's a really nuanced thing happening with homophobia 
in that um, one men are, you know, tend to be more afraid of um, uh, and more threatened by homo by certain kinds of homophobia, right? So men talked about I would never hold my boyfriend's hand um, walking in a rural area, right? Um, whereas maybe if they earlier had been perceived as a woman and had a woman partner, um, they you know wouldn't think twice about it. Um, so really seeing that connection between um, the ways that um, masculinity and homophobia are still really intricately linked to one another, um, both in um, avoiding effeminacy, whether um, a man identifies as straight, as queer, as or you know something else, um, or um, just in the ways that particular sort of gendered behaviors get intimately tied to um, heteronormativity, and homophobia mm, as well. Sure, sure. Yeah. So speaking of like the different ways that men are treated based on things like sexual orientation. You also mentioned that um, these men had something called racial projects. So what are the racial projects um, that you term racial project and what is its connection to masculinity? Yeah, sure. So um, I I draw racial projects from the work of Omi and Wenant, um, Uh who essentially talk about racial projects in their book, Racial Formations, as essentially things that both represent or explain racial dynamics along with redistributing resources along racial lines. So um, I talk about two kinds of hypermasculinity um, really explicitly in the book. Um, We think again of of that too hard side. Um, And I use Patricia Hill Collins' um, notion of controlling images to talk about these uh, ideas, these these images that came out of the interviews of the thug and the redneck. So the thug is um, represents the sort of hyper-masculine black urban man, um, poor or working class urban man, some, sometimes Latino man. And the redneck represents um, the, the sort of white working class or poor um, uh, man in rural spaces, right? So we have, again, um, hypermasculine, urban, um, black, poor man, and white, rural, um, working class or poor man, and both heterosexual. And so I, I, I think of these as racial projects in the way that they become, the thug and the redneck become a way to um, displace all blame for racism on poor rural whites right? To say, well, if racism still exists, that's where it exists among poor world whites. Um, and then to also have this sort of image of the hypermasculine um, thug as another sort of explanation for racial inequality, right? Um, because it's it sort of blames um, the socioeconomic and other conditions of urban black communities on this sort of hyper-masculine thug um, uh, caricature in many ways, right? So, so there's this complicated thing happening that, um, again, if we, if we put the regular guy there, that's, that's um, often unmarked as white as well and middle-class and, you know, maybe urban or suburban, um, 
we see how, you know, it's, it's becomes a way to, again, displace that racial, um, sexual and gender inequality, right? All of the racism, all of the homophobia is, um, is, you know, can be laid onto this hyper-masculinity. Sure. Yeah. So also you mentioned how this was, um, linked to, especially like in the South, this redneck, um, and then they have the urban thug. So how are masculine ideals linked to region? Um, and then how did masculinity differ in rural spaces? Yeah, sure. So um, I found the masculinities of each region were really shaped by things like landscapes, the social conditions, and, and most importantly, sort of rural economic uh, production. So that rural spaces are really important for these larger masculine ideals. So if we think about the Midwest, for example, and we can think about parts of the Midwest as tied to particular kinds of farming masculinities, the sort of stoic Midwestern farmer, um, and other parts of the Midwest um, as the industrial or factory-based sort of worker. Um, Whereas in the West, there's more of an influence of a cowboy masculinity and a a different kind of sort of frontier pioneer notion of, um, of what it means to be a man. Now, these aren't hard and fast rules that I sort of discovered, but rather these these mental images we have about places such as region that um, that are just sort of another aspect of how of what shape how masculinities are done and how they are perceived. So I think in some of the, the variations that we see between regions um, that um, in, in some of that variation, you know, it's often, again, tied to that rural space, but um, it's these images where we see the difference between a city like Chicago and Atlanta or um, Atlanta and San Francisco. Um, and we might see that sort of regional flavor that, um, that I encountered as I, as I moved throughout the country in these three regions. And also as the men sort of, um, you know, these these ideals both came out of sort of the prior work on each of the regions, the histories of the regions, and then also um, what was prominent to the men about the places where they lived or where they were from. So often it was that, and that redneck really loomed large. So (laughs) yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So one of the chapters you titled geography of violence, and I think this goes well with the, us talking about space right now. Um, you also talk about the geography of safety. So how do trans men navigate vulnerability through what you call both the vulnerability rituals and conforming masculine, uh, conforming masculinity? Yeah. So in that chapter, I really built, uh, those, that chapter I really built on the work of feminist geographers and sociologists and, and some of my earlier work mm-hmm. as well to really try and understand how our experiences of violence happen in particular places. Um, so that might be our geography of violence, right? We mark out like where violence has happened, where is danger. Um, and then I um, have this notion of the geography of safety, which is about um, our sense of our own safety, our fears of violence, um, and how that gets mapped onto the spaces and places we live in, and also those places that we imagine. Right. And so um, this is where we sort of mark, where am I going to be less safe and where am I going to be more safe? 
regardless of the actual likelihood of violence in those places. So um, the key with thinking about geographies of um, safety tend to is that they affect our behavior. So they affect where we're likely to go and how we're likely to act once we're there. Um, the really classic example of this is uh, the popular idea that women walking alone at night are more likely to be sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. right? Probably by a stranger jumping out of the bushes. Um, and while we know that sometimes happens and that's you know a, a problem, um, what we also know is that women are much more likely to be assaulted by someone they know. Um, and this myth mm-hmm. of stranger violence actually limits women's access to public space, right? So... Trans men report one of the changes that they experience when they transition, when they're recognized as as men by others, is that they no longer have to have this particular fear, but that others become really more prominent, like being physically assaulted by other men, Um, which, you know, men are actually more likely than women as a group to experience all kinds of assault, except for sexual assault. Um, So that fear... Um, of physical violence from other men, whether it's strangers or people they know, is actually um, reflected in in broader statistics. Um, And then the men are also have a a lot of fear of being exposed to transphobic violence. And, you know, some of that makes sense because they, you know, maybe we'll talk about these contexts later, but um, because of the violence that they experience in medical contexts or maybe violence, um, transphobic or homophobic violence they experienced before. So for urban trans men, um, their geography of safety might mean that certain neighborhoods feel safer than others. So if, for example, in San Francisco, men talked about like the Castro, which is the gay neighborhood in San Francisco, felt safer, whereas other neighborhoods might feel safer and then uh, uh, less safe. And then anywhere outside San Francisco would be, you know, less safe than that. And then outside of, you know, the Bay Area, um, everything was dangerous, right? Well, for um, men that lived in those those areas that were seen as really unsafe um, by other by urban trans men, they often had these much more nuanced geographies of safety, right? So they would maybe know, hey, this particular person in my town is particularly transphobic or homophobic or racist, and I need to stay away from them. Or they might know that there's a town in their particular area. Um, that is, you know, you don't want to stop for gas if you're driving through there because X town is, you know, is, you know, less safe. Um, Mm -hmm. And overall, what I found is that trans men reported that in the places where they felt less safe, they were more likely to conform to local expectations of masculinity, right? So they're more likely to do these more conforming behaviors. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? If you feel less safe, you're going to try and protect yourself. Um, but what one of the things that came up was that a number of men talked about how this stopped them from intervening in things like racism, sexism, and homophobia against others at moments that they really wanted to intervene. And I think it's important to note here that I don't think trans men necessarily have a special burden or yeah, have a special burden to combat social inequality, right? They don't necessarily have to, I think some of the most marginalized people should not be given the burden to be sort of warriors for, um, um, against social inequality. I mean, I think we all have a, um, you know, should do that, but uh, that marginalized people shouldn't have more of a responsibility. 
Um, but one of the things I turn to, and this is where vulnerability rituals comes in, is to that I was trying to understand how this fear was produced and like what the fear itself does, right? So um, vulner- vulnerability rituals are what I define as moments that performatively reinforce the vulnerability of a particular group of people to violence. I use Transgender Day of Remembrance um, as an example. And um, T- Trans Day of Remembrance, or TDOR, is an important event that memorializes the people lost to transphobic violence each year. Um, and I see it as an example of a ritual that reinforces the vulnerability of all trans people but often doesn't make the point that it is trans women and especially black and brown trans women who face the greatest chance of facing transphobic violence, especially um, homicide. Um, and in fact, trans men almost, you know, there are very few um, trans men that experience fatal transphobic violence um, that we know of. So I had to ask, you know, as um as these 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 narratives of fear were coming up in the interviews, um, you know, I and then uh, some of the men I interviewed had questions about how does narrating this vulnerability actually divert attention and resources from those that are actually most at risk, right? So in this moment, um, reinforcing their own vulnerability also also potentially marks them as innocent in the systems that perpetuate violence against Black and Brown trans women, right? So we can see the inner interlocking or interconnecting systems of sexism, white supremacy, cis-sexism, working together um, there. And I think, and I'll also just uh, shout out to Laura Westbrook's work really addresses these questions from a different lens as well and the ways that sort of vulnerability is produced Um, and we, how we might want to have some critical questions about, you know, how does this, how does producing certain forms of vulnerability actually make inequality um it can actually further certain kinds of inequality mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i want to go ahead and jump back to a, a concept that you mentioned earlier in the interview that i want to talk about it's this goldilocks masculinity so you mentioned goldilocks masculinity as a sort of an overarching ideal so what do you mean by this concept and yeah can you just talk more about what you mean by goldilocks masculinity Sure. So uh, Goldilocks masculinity is a hybrid masculinity, um, meaning that it incorporates some aspects of marginalized and subordinated masculinities. If we think about Raymond Connell's um, notions of multiple masculinities, right? Um, So it incorporates these marginalized and subordinated masculinities as a way to shore up the position of some men over women and over most other men. And especially in light of recent challenges to more dominating or traditional masculinities, right? We can think about all of the ways that feminists and other movements have, have challenged um, these things. So this, this Goldilocks masculinity is about being not being too hyper-masculine, but not too feminine or feminine either. It's finding that just right in between, right? It's finding that, 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 that bowl of porridge, I guess. And... Um, mm-hmm. I also found that it's, it's about um, the ability to maintain that in between, right? That not too hard, not too soft, as men move between different geographic and institutional spaces. Um, it's the ability to, to kind of hold that in between that's the real ideal of contemporary U.S. masculinity. Um, 
Now, by virtue of their race, their class, their sexuality, some men may never be able to achieve this ideal. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a change. This hybrid masculinity, this Goldilocks masculinity, is a change um, that is positive in some ways, right? It, it's it's a kinder and gently gentler face on U.S. American masculinity, but in the way that it still upholds this larger um, gender order gender, racial, and sexual order, I would say, um, it does not actually fundamentally challenge or change the, in, in, the inequalities that underlie this gender order. Yeah, so can you say a bit more about how um, men navigated norms and rules regarding their emotions? Yeah, sure. So um, so a lot of men, you know, in this, in this part of the book, I talk a lot about the... Um, you know, that not too hard and not too soft um, of emotion um, of, of the Goldilocks masculinity and how that really tied into emotion. So instead of there being a norm of men shouldn't cry, right, or boys don't cry, it was, you know, there are times when you should cry, right? If you're, as one guy said, something along the lines of when your newborn baby is put in your arms, you know, you, you should cry that you're your father's funeral and you should cry, right? Um, you shouldn't be afraid to do that. But also narrated the importance of the men, men I talked to for the most part narrated the importance of, but you need to not to be able to hold it in as well, right? You need to be able to get through certain situations. Um, you shouldn't be crying all the time. And um, one of the one of the interesting things that came up as part of that was um talking about the influence of, I think all but about two or three of the men I interviewed um, had um, used testosterone therapy um, to, to varying extents. And although we tend to associate testosterone with things like anger and aggression, uh, most of the men, and, and some men did experience increased anger and aggression, particularly at first um, when starting testosterone therapy, but most of them actually talked about feeling more calm and in control um, and I think this really mirrors the larger narrative of cisgender boys going from being impetuous, hormonally controlled youth to calmer adult men. Um, so I think trans men's narratives are very similar to cisgender men's narratives of emotion in those ways and sort of bodily affect. Yeah, I found that part really interesting. Um, so why are recognition and authenticity important when studying these interactions with trans men? So how does recognition as a, a man relate to their authenticity? Yeah, absolutely. So I think recognition, those moments where um, other people saw them, you know, there are different forms of recognition that I look at in the book. One of the main forms of recognition is for trans men um, was to be recognized as others as a man, recognized by others as a man. And um, that was a really important sense of, um, you know, uh, of a way to um, help establish also their, their authenticity as men um, in those many sort of everyday moments um, that could come from someone, you know, who knew them accepting their new name and their pronoun, their correct pronouns. Um, it could come from being called sir or he um, in an interaction with the stranger. Um, and that had a way of, you know, 
of really affirming their sense of an authentic self. Um, and, but there were other forms of recognition as well. For some men, they felt a sort of loss in some ways when they were recognized solely as men um, or as cisgender men, um, where, you know, parts of their own biography, um, maybe their transgender identity for some men um, was lost in those moments as well. So, um, and there was also a sense of authenticity in, in recognition in regard to what kinds of men were they recognized as, you know, how did others see them? Um, not just did they see them as a man, but did they see them as the kind of guy that they wanted them to be. Yeah. And then you also in this section talk about expansive versus restrictive notions of who is a man and how this varied by region. So say a little bit more about that. Sure. So, um, so, you know, I started off this project, I, I, I mentioned earlier that um, sometimes I think trans men are not accepted as men in um, the field of critical men and masculinity studies, but I think it's, uh, you know, in other realms as well, I encounter some skepticism about my work and whether trans men are really men. And, you know, at first, these questions really surprise me because I just think that people are the gender they say they are, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the things I found out is that that was like a, actually a very particular knowledge that came from the places that I lived from places like the San Francisco Bay area um, from Portland, Oregon um, and from the queer and trans um, the queer communities that, um, I've been a part of that is, you know, we look at a sort of um, expansive gender knowledge. Someone, you know, people are the gender they say they are. Um, trans people and non-binary people exist. Um, you know, people are not locked into some kind of gender when they're, you know, that's that's connected to their um, sex assigned at birth, right? And that there's some fluidity and flexibility in all of these categories. Um, and then in other spaces, um, one of the, I encountered what I call restrictive gender knowledges that maybe are binary and essentialist, right? There are only two gender categories, men and women, um, and essentialists, right? They're tied to, you know, men are people who are assigned male at birth, women are people who are assigned female at birth, and, that, and there's no crossing over, right? So I, so I found these varying gender knowledges and sometimes and when we think about recognition those moments of being seen as as who you feel like you are um you know there were uh, wonderful moments i think of a, a guy who um was in a really queer and trans affirming fraternity and he hadn't yet had chest reconstruction surgery and he was out at a cabin for the weekend with his friends and um, they said, hey, swim with your shirt off. You know, we ex your, your chest is a man's chest, right? And he had this wonderful experience of being recognized for who he was um, by his fraternity brothers. And then another, in another similar example, I, um, there was a guy that had lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and he, where there's this really expansive gender knowledge, right? And he felt like people would often see him as transgender or as a butch woman, um, which is he just wanted them to see him as a man, right? That was that was his authentic um, identity. And so he actually moved to the rural Southeast. Um, he told me this really amazing story that I think is one of the most interesting stories in the, in the book, although there are lots of interesting ones, I think, or I hope. And 
they, um, you know, his neighbors saw him without his shirt on. And um, this guy, you know, had a, had a, a large chest before, because he hadn't had yet had chest reconstruction surgery. And because the neighbor was operating with this, right, we're talking about the rural Southeast, he was operating with a restrictive mm-hmm. gender knowledge. Um, so how did he interpret the guy, this you know, this guy's chest, he thought, well, you must have some kind of glandular, untreated glandular problem, right? Um, and so totally recognized him as a man. In a lot of ways, in that moment, Wesley got what he wanted by moving to the rural Southeast, right? To be seen as who he was as a man. Um, so we might think of, you know, restrictive or expansive knowledges as we might always think that expansive knowledges are always better, right? They're, they're, they're going to have a fuller range of recognition. But I actually found that those restrictive knowledges um, can be, um, can allow for forms of recognition that the expansive knowledges don't. Yeah, that was one part of the book that really changed my perspective on what it means to be recognized as the gender you are and how, like you said, like you, we would think expansive is always better, but not necessarily if you're um, not looking for recognition necessarily as trans, but you're just a man. Um, so yeah, that maybe that was a real eye opener for someone like like a cisgender person like me who is in these spaces, LGBTQ affirming spaces. Um, I had never really heard that perspective before. Um, but going back a little bit to our talk about place, and this is also tying into your title. Who were men that were out of place and how did these men not fit into their spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think that, you know, being out of place and that's, that's drawing from um, Cresswell's notion of in space, out of space. Um, we're really the men that, um, you know, didn't fit um, in, in, in the local place. So I talked about the guy who Wesley was his name, who had that sort of encounter with his neighbor who accepted him as a cisgender man. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the way that, you know, it wasn't just this, you know, one of the things that helped Wesley be recognized in that way was that he was doing masculinities that really aligned with that space, right? He was doing these sort of working class, rural, um, heterosexual masculinities. And that really, despite, you know, perhaps despite Wesley's chest, that made Wesley really in place. And then we think, I can think about another man, Gabriel, who was, lived in an urban, um, in a city in the Southeast and was traveling to visit some family in the country um, in, in, um, in a area sort of nearby. And, um, you know, as a black man, he talked about, hey, you know, I'm not, people here recognize me as a cisgender straight man. So I'm not worried about queer phobia. I'm not really that worried about transphobia. What I am worried about is getting from pocket to pocket, you know, getting, getting through white communities, white racist communities. Um, And so we can see some of the ways that um, Gabriel there was his name was never in place in the way that Wesley was. Um, and sort of didn't fit in that, in that way. Sure, sure, yeah. And then I want to also jump back to, you mentioned this in a bit before, um, the two spaces where 
trans men did experience violence um, or were at, at risk for experiencing violence. And those were the two cases you talk about are bathrooms and medical care. So why are these spaces in particular significant? Why did you choose these two cases? Yeah. So um, I chose these two spaces because these were the places that um, trans the trans men I interviewed reported their most heightened fears and their those actual experiences of violence, as you mentioned. And I talk about them as um, amplified sites of gender as well as race and sexuality. So that in some ways, this follows Cecilia Ridgway's discussion of moments where gender becomes salient. Um, but, and I see these amplified sites as places where the work of gender, race, and sexuality is done in significant ways because, and you know, I really focus on gender here, these sites are structured around gender categories, um, right? This is kind of Petra Doan, who's a geographer, calls this the tyranny of gendered spaces as well. Um, and so, you know, in medical or in bathrooms, for example, right, this is the gender segregated or sex segregated space that we encounter most often in everyday life, right? Um, as, you know, and, and even Irving Goffman was talking about this in the 1970s in the way that, like, as we see increasing gender equality um, in, in, in many ways, or at least progress on equality, um, we still, you know, are constantly going into the space where we're sorting ourselves in gendered ways, um, and that, um, you know, Goffman actually says that, um, they don't just, um, sort of reestablish this difference, but they actually produce this difference in this inequality. And so, um, you know, trans men's fears were especially heightened in the moments when they would talk about their transitions, where they were trying to make the decision to start using men's bathrooms. And, um, and they had a lot of fear because, you know, especially um, one often doesn't see the inside of the, what the other bathroom looks like unless you have a job. Like I had these jobs in the past where you're cleaning the other bathroom or whatever, and then you kind of get a sense of it. But um, so they're going into these new spaces. And, you know, one of the really interesting things about, I think, the men's bathroom is that, um, you know, so we have this gender difference that occurs in the sorting. Um, and then in the, well, in, in the women's bathroom, men experience, the trans men I interviewed experienced a lot of harassment, right? They experienced people yelling at them. They experienced the police being called on them um, when they were trying to, um, whether they were, you know, uh, had transitioned or were just a more masculine presenting person going into those spaces. And they had all of this fear built up going to the men's bathroom. But once they started using the men's bathroom, they found that, well, there's a set of rules in the men's bathroom, right? Um, you don't look at one another. You don't really talk to one another. Of course, sometimes these rules are flexible, but, um, you know, these are the general rules. And it turns out that these rules prevent a lot of scrutiny from happening. Um, so the men found that if they followed those rules, um, that they were mostly okay, right? In the women's bathroom, there's, there's much more of a norm of, talking to one another, right, commenting, which, um, you know, made for more scrutiny in those spaces. But when we go back to the men's bathrooms, well, what are those rules based on? Those rules are based on homophobia, right? Um, that you're, you don't fit in that space if you are doing any of these, at least in most, most of these bathrooms, right? If you're doing any of these practices, if you're looking um, anything else, right? So, um, so, you know, what I found there is that actually these gender segregated spaces, you know, the women's kind of promotes this gender normativity and the men's really reproduces heterosexism 
um, in those everyday moments. Because the men talked about it first, they were really conscious of following the rules of the space. And then eventually they be- just became how they were in those spaces, right? Mm-hmm. That they became embodied um, and just how they sort of moved through that space. Um, so I so I argue they become you know they they reflect um, you know everyday sort of gender segregation and everyday homophobia as well, and then the medical context um, we can see how those spaces are really you know at so many different levels are shaped by gender um, or you know uh, gender and sex get sort of mixed up in these spaces, but um, we can think about things like intake forms. Um, we can think about the ways that um, understandings of medicine are structured around particular notions of sexed bodies, right? And so trans men often find that they're going into these spaces and they, um, so trans men find that they're going into these spaces and whether they're going for something like strep throat or something else that because gender is so amplified in these sites that um, they things happen like they're in in the hospital for new onset diabetes and an endocrinologist asks to look at their genitals or um, you know in other you, you have what's called trans broken arm syndrome right it's one of the names for it yeah yeah where someone goes in and they they somehow their broken arm you know, they go in with a broken arm and somehow they're asked a lot of questions about their transgender history or the status of their hormones or status of their, um, you know, of their gender. Um, one of, you know, someone, t- I don't remember if this made it in the book or not, but um, someone talked about being afraid to go to the doctor because of their strep throat, because the last time they had gone in for that, they had been, the doctor had done a pelvic exam, which, you know, I've had strep throat plenty of times and I don't know what a pelvic exam has to do with that. Um, so because gender was so amplified in these two sites, um, men experienced, you know, I think that the medical context were the real place where trans men, um, their their fears of violence really um, aligned with their experiences of violence and sometimes exceeded their fears. Um, and, and another piece of that is that, you know, the structure of medical contacts really empowers um, physicians and other, um, you know, medical workers and disempowers patients. So the places where trans men experienced or had fewer experiences of violence were places that really worked on, you know, um, being not just sensitive to gender, but also addressing that um, power imbalance between doctor and patient. Yeah, yeah. So in wrapping up the interview, I do want to ask, what surprised you most about your research process or your findings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the thing that, if I'm being totally honest, the thing that surprised me the most, you know, I'm a person that grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I've lived mm-hmm. in, you know, stayed on the West Coast, lived, always lived on the West Coast and, you know, live in a sort of another liberal, liberal bubble city, um, was that many of the white rural trans men that I interviewed were mostly living really unexceptional lives in their rural towns. Um, that they were, so, you know, the thing I learned was to undo and continue to undo my own metronormative bias, right? This idea that to live a good queer or trans life, one must 
live in a, a major city um, on the east or west coast, or maybe Chicago. Um, and so that's been the, the thing that I think was truly surprising and, and really transformative for me as a scholar and as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and my final question for you is, what are you working on now or next? Sure. Um, so I have a few ongoing projects. One of them really builds on um, that, on the rural aspects of my research. So I'm doing a project on LGBTQ people who live in the inland, uh, rural inland Northwest. So these are places like Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And one of the things I'm focusing on now is not, is, you know, one sort of building on um, our knowledge of LGBTQ people living in these um, mostly unexamined spaces, but also these spaces are sites of really increased far right um, organizing and far right um, Christian nationalist migration. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, uh, discourse of um, moving, you know, uh, true patriots and true Christians moving away from cities or other places and finding this sort of refuge or, or homeland um, in this inland Northwest region. And one of the things that I'm interested in is trying to understand what are the effects that this has on marginalized people in these spaces as we have this increased migration and increased organizing of things like militias um, and other things. So that's looking at LGBTQ people's experiences. I've started doing interviews in Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington, um, which I'll continue. And then also really, you know, because I'm so interested in that intersection of race, sexuality, and gender, I think it's such a primary intersection um, to understand social inequality. Uh, you know, I'm also focusing on how sort of race, both in whiteness, in, you know, in the way that whiteness is being solidified in these spaces, but also, you know, how does this migration and how do these social dynamics affect people of color? That's my next big project. Um, I'm also doing some smaller projects on, or some other projects on um, LGBTQ people's coming of age experiences across different generations. So looking at um, sort of Generation X, um, millennials, um, and others, and seeing how those um, experiences differ over time. And then continuing some of my work on um, trans people's experiences on um, of mobility. Um, so not thinking about mobility in the way that sociologists often think about social mobility, but thinking about moving through spaces like cities. Um, so I've done some work and I'm continuing to do some work on um, how trans people navigate um, urban public transit um, and the kinds of their experiences mm-hmm. of harassment, discrimination, and violence in those spaces. Wow, those all sound like really great projects. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I'm we'll excited see how, to hear more about them. Yeah, we'll see how they go amidst this when I when I'll be able to do inter, in person interviews again. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, that yeah. really, really throws qualitative work a lot of the time for a loop. Um, it really does. But where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Abelson Doctor. You can find me on Instagram at Men in Place, um, and my website, which is MiriamJAbelson.com. Um, yeah. So those are those are the main things that you can places where you can find out about 
about my um, my book um, and my ongoing work. Fantastic. So Miriam, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I really enjoyed getting the chance to chat with you as well. 